0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. So it's June, summer is supposed to be here, it's not quite here, but if we wait, it will eventually come, right? So at least somebody has shorts on here, he's hopeful, hopeful for summer coming, Um, If you're a a visitor, my name is Kurt, I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds, and we're going to be continuing our study in 1 Samuel today, so uh, take out your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16, take out your outlines, Uh, while you're doing that, let me just give you a little heads up of what's going on uh, for the next few weeks in the preaching and teaching around here, Um, we'll have, next week we'll do the second half of 1 Samuel chapter 16, And then we're actually going to take a break from 1 Samuel. Pastor Jordan will be on his sabbatical for the summer at that time. And so we're going to go into our summer series, which is uh, titled, What Does the Bible Say About? Or What Does the Bible Say? And what we're going to do is we're going to take the top answers from that preaching topic survey that we did in the spring through the app with you guys, and we're going to respond to You know, answer your questions that you had. So I'll actually be preaching on this campus for the first three weeks of that series. So the first week, I'm going to answer the question, what does the Bible say about handling and beating temptation? That was one of the top questions you guys had, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Second week, I'm going to talk about what does the Bible say about demons? I've never preached a sermon on demons, but that'll be fun. So this is good. And then the third week, I'll be preaching on what does the Bible say about angels, because that was another topic you guys had. We have a number of other uh, topics we'll be preached on during the summer, but I'll tell you about more of those next week. Um, That'll bring us ultimately to late August, when Pastor Jordan will return, and we'll pick up back in 1 Samuel at that time. We'll be at 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is the story of David and Goliath. So we want to be in a position to pick up the whole David narrative, because he gets introduced to us this week, and really the story of David starts mostly with David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks, and um, let's go ahead and pray, and I'm just going to dive right into the text after that. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for 1 Samuel. Thank you for the chance we have to study your word, and I thank you for what you've been teaching us about who you are, Heavenly Father, and teaching us about your grace and how you work in lives and your sovereignty and how you're large and in charge over our lives and over history. Now I ask that as I teach this morning, you would help me to teach well, help us to see Jesus in all things and to love him more. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you... um, have a chance to listen to those sermon preview videos I've been trying to send out. And if you've listened to the one that I sent out this past week, I told you a little secret about my marriage, which is that Cindy and I, well, we don't see everything the same way. And I'm sure that I'm not the only marriage where that takes place. Uh, I hear amen in the back there. Yeah. Um, for us, when we got married, you know, I thought dishes go in the sink and you wait till the pile gets big enough before you actually wash them as a typical bachelor. I quickly learned that is not the way it would be done in our house. My wife informed me. Dishes go from the sink into the washer and they get cleaned right away. I'm like, okay, we see things differently, but I'll just accommodate. I also thought that the best way to save money with the laundry is stick as much as you can in that laundry, that washer. And she saw this thing about you need to separate lights and darks. And I had to learn. I had to accommodate with that. And my wife and I, we also discovered how differently we're wired. Like, I'm one of these guys that as soon as the sun goes down, I'm ready for bed because I want to be up at 5 o'clock in the morning. My wife is the exact opposite. She's a night owl. And it was hard to even get her to go to bed, like, in front of midnight because she would like to sleep in. And so we had to learn to accommodate. And we just had different points of view on things. But it's it's not just uh, a husband and wife that often have different points of view on things. If you looked around the world, everybody seems to have a different point of view on things. In fact, people like to look at things differently. And we're told that what we should do is we should learn what other people's points of view are, and we should accommodate other people's points of view, and we should accept other people's points of view because all points of view as we're told in a postmodern world are equally valid and there's no way we should say that our point of view is actually better than someone else's point of view and if you would do that then you'd be considered a, a bigot because mature postmoderns realize that everything is just a point of view and there's you know there's no such thing as a point of view that is right or wrong that sounds nice on paper but it really doesn't actually work? Like maybe your point of view is that the government is corrupt. Maybe your point of view is that businesses are too rich. And so you decide that the right thing to do is to to break windows, to steal TVs at a Best Buy and and burn down businesses. That may be your point of view, but I guarantee you the owner of the business who has put his life savings and life work into the business does not have the same point of view as you. And is there one that's right? And is there one that's wrong? What do you think? Yeah, you guys say yes. Well, let me take another subject where people have different points of view, and that's the one about Jesus Christ. Most of the people in this room, we believe, would say that uh, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's the one who died in our place for our sins, and it's only by faith and trust in Jesus Christ that we can be saved for by our sins, and that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. After all, Jesus did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And the point of view that we have is that, well, Jesus is the one before whom everyone will stand in eternity. He is the judge of all the earth. That is the Bible's point of view. That's the one that we try to hold, but as you know, most people don't hold that point of view. Most people in the world have a different point of view about Jesus. They say, well, maybe he's just a a good man, (laughs) or maybe he's just a good moral teacher. Other people think he's just a myth from history, and they say, well, you have your point of view about Jesus, and I have my point of view about Jesus, and who are you to say that your point of view is right and my point of view is wrong? Don't we live in a postmodern world where we learn to accept and tolerate everyone else? Well, as we as a church are trying to reach people with Jesus Christ, we're going to run into those kind of questions where our point of view is different from other point of view when it comes to talking to other people's point of view when it comes to talking about Jesus how do we answer them that is one of the things we're going to look at this morning as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel so in your mind's eye travel back to ancient Israel Travel back to the time when Samuel lived. At that time, we know, um, in 1 Samuel 16, Israel had asked for a king, and God gave them a king. The king's name was Saul. And remember, this was Israel's first king, and it was, Saul was literally a king that the people chose for themselves. Saul was a king that checked all the people's boxes of what they thought a good king would be. He had the qualities that the people wanted. We saw this in 1 Samuel 12 when Saul was introduced. Samuel says this, And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Now it's true that uh, Samuel, or excuse me, Saul did have many good kingly qualities. We've seen that Saul could win battles. Saul could rally the nation to action. Um, Saul was taller than everyone else. Remember, Saul was better looking than everyone else. So on the outside, Saul passed the kingly test. He checked all the kingly boxes. But as time went on, we saw that there were other issues with Saul. Like what's going on on his inside. What was his heart like? In 1 Samuel chapter 13 and chapter 15, we saw that Saul was quite willing to disobey God if obedience to God did not suit his personal agenda. How can you be the king over God's people if you will not be willing to obey God's word? And For that reason, we saw that last week, God rejected Saul as king. Today, when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we have some new kingly developments. A new king is coming. 1 Samuel 15 ends with these words. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And I read that, I'm thinking, that's a really tough way to end a relationship. The prophet of God and the king of God have separated ways. They never again will see one another alive in this life. That is a bad breakup. But a period of time passes, and then 1 Samuel 16 begins. And it begins with these words. The Lord said to Samuel, "How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel?" I want to begin with this word "grieve." This word "grieve" in the Hebrew is a very strong term. It's the kind of grief you have if your spouse dies or if your child dies unexpectedly. This is not casual grief. This is serious grief, deep. Grief on Samuel's part over Saul. And then I'm just going to tell you what I wrote down in my study as I was looking at that. Like, Samuel really cared about Saul, didn't he? He really loved King Saul. He had great, high hopes for King Saul. And when King Saul sinned, Samuel was deeply grieved. And when King Saul was rejected by God, he was deeply grieved, deeply saddened. And I wrote this down in my notes. You're like, how do I respond to people I love who reject Jesus? How do we respond when people we love reject Jesus? Well, do we? Do any of you have a family member who's rejected Jesus and walked away? I do. Do any of you have friends at work or friends in the community that you've tried to talk to about Jesus, but they've rejected Jesus and walked away? I do. Now, oftentimes when that happens, we, we sort of like, well, oh, well, move on, just blow it off. I'm not, not too sure if that's always the right response. It just stuck out to me how deeply Samuel grieves for Saul when Saul rejects God's obedience to God. and He's rejected as a king. What a reminder about the importance of being sad and grieving those who reject Jesus Christ. But that being said, it does appear here that apparently Samuel grieved too long and too deeply. Because it starts by the Lord saying, okay, enough grief, Samuel. Don't get stuck in your grief. Don't stay in your grief. It's time for you to move on. There's another chapter. Uh, There's more future here. We have to move on and continue. And what God's going to do is he's going to bring about a new king for Israel. And then it stuck out to me, something else I wrote down in my notes. And I put it in your outline for you here. You know, it's in the darkest moments of our suffering when God is often preparing his power and grace. Isn't that true? Put yourself in Samuel's shoes. How overwhelmed you are here in your elderly years. You've tried to be faithful to God. You've followed the words of God. You've anointed Saul king. You saw such good beginnings with the Ammonites, and then all of a sudden you saw this crash on the backside, the man building a monument to himself, to his own greatness, a man willing to start disobeying God's word if it didn't suit his fancy, a man finally rejected as king by God, yet he's still reigning as king over God's people, and you and him are separated, and where is there hope? If you're in Samuel's shoes, where is there a future? I mean, this looks like a terrible, dark, hopeless, bitter end, doesn't it? You ever had those seasons in your life where you can't see hope, where you can't see the future? And it's in those seasons when God seems to often work his great grace and work his great power. And that's exactly what God is doing. I know all you can see is the bitter end with Saul, but I have a new thing going. I have a a, a new king coming. Come on, get up, Samuel. We have to anoint somebody. And this theme of God's grace coming in times of great darkness in our life, it's not just found here in this little tiny section of 1 Samuel 16, but isn't it found throughout the scriptures? Remember the Exodus when God's people were forced to make bricks without straw when God's people were slaves, working themselves to death, forced to throw their own children, the male children, into the Nile River, completely hopeless. Yet that, that's when God brought Moses, their deliverer. Think of the time of the judges. God's people would be conquered by a nation around them. They were hopelessly oppressed. And then God would, in the midst, he would bring his grace and his power and raise up a judge, wouldn't he? Who would rescue them. It's not just that, but even think of Samuel's life. Remember what it was like in the early studies of this book? It was the time when Eli and his two wicked sons were priests, and there was no hope, no light for the future. When Eli died and Hophni and Phinehas were in charge, it was going to look terrible. And in that time, in response to his mother's prayer, Hannah Hannah's prayer, God had Samuel conceived, and then God orchestrated events. So uh, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were taken out of the picture in one day, and Samuel was put in charge in the same day. That's God's grace. That's God's power in times of darkness when we least expect it. Isn't that the same theme for us when there is no way that we could save ourselves from our sin? God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place for our sin. He saved us when we couldn't save ourselves. (laughs) God's amazing grace in times of hopelessness and despair, it's what we all need to cling to. We see it just dripping all over the pages of Scripture, even in this little section of 1 Samuel 16. So the story continues. Time for a new thing, Samuel. We have to anoint a new king. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, this is not too long of a trip. If Samuel's in Ramah, uh, Bethlehem, where Jesse will be at, is only an 11-mile trip. And who's Jesse? Jesse nothing of claim to fame, other than the fact he is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. So you remember the book of Ruth? This is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Now the precise words here are important, where he says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. What does it mean to say I'll provide for myself a king? This king that is going to be anointed by Samuel, is going to be different than King Saul. As I told you earlier, King Saul was chosen really based on the people's criteria. Remember this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the people said, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want a king that's like the people around us. Or as I told you earlier about 1 Samuel 12, 13, And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. This next king, though, will be different. And there's been hints at his differentness that have been coming along in previous chapters, like 1 Samuel 13, 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue, God said to Saul the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord will command him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Or in 1 Samuel 15, And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So, Samuel is to go to anoint a new king, a different king, a king that God will choose, not a king that the people will choose. Quite honestly, at this point, Samuel's a little reluctant to get involved in this whole king-making thing, because he knows that if he goes out and anoints a new king while Saul is still king, do you think Saul's going to be happy about it? Absolutely not. It would not end well. This is why Samuel responds to God with these words. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now, remember that Samuel has to travel from Ramah to Bethlehem. But to go from Ramah to Bethlehem, he has to literally pass through Gibeah, which is where Saul lives. Let me show you this in the map. There's Ramah, there's Bethlehem, and Gibeah is right smack in the middle. So he's got to pass through Saul's town. Well, Samuel may have spiritual authority over Saul, Saul still has the army, and by the way, he's not afraid to use it, and he sometimes he uses it in really poor ways. Later on, we'll see in this book in 1 Samuel 22 that. Saul uses his military to kill the priests of Nob. He thought they were conspiring against him. They weren't, but he's decided to bump them all off. So Samuel has some real reason to think, I don't want to upset Saul. I don't want to get in his way, and maybe I should be fearing for my life. But he still has to obey God's word. Then God says this, And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Let me talk about this verse for a little bit here. As you look at people who study these things. They, some people really don't like this verse, because they say, look at this, God is instructing Samuel to deceive people about what he's doing, about why he's traveling. God is telling Samuel to be deceptive. That's not really what's going on here. What God is doing is he's giving Samuel another reason to travel from Ramah to Bethlehem, that he's on his way to offer a sacrifice which is what he will legitimately do. When people ask him about his trip, he can say, I'm on my way to offer a sacrifice, and he's telling the truth. But he doesn't need necessarily to disclose all of the information about the trip or other reasons about the trip. But he can now disclose some legitimate, true reasons about the trip. So this is not necessarily deceptive. This is just having an alternate reason. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded And came to Bethlehem. I'm sure he was pretty freaked out when he was passing through Saul's hometown, but he obeyed. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Well, earlier, Samuel was the one who was afraid to travel to Bethlehem. When he gets to Bethlehem, it looks like the elders of the city are more afraid of him than he was even about traveling there. You know, I wondered, like, why would the elders of the city be so afraid of Samuel the prophet? Well, a couple ideas. I think everybody's heard about the conflict between Samuel and Saul. (laughs) And most people probably don't want to get involved. They don't want to get drawn into it. As we're going to see next week, Saul is in a really bad way. Not the kind of guy you want to get angry. And I also thought, what was the last thing that we saw Samuel doing? You guys remember last week? He hacked King Agag to pieces. So you don't want to get Samuel upset here. He's really good with the sword. Okay. Now we are set for the scene of the selection who among Jesse's sons is Samuel to anoint as king and when they came he looked on Eliab and thought well surely the lord's anointed is before him Jesse's sons arrive and Saul's Samuel's eyes are drawn right away to Eliab Eliab by the way is the firstborn he's tall he's good looking He was the quarterback on the Bethlehem High football team. I mean, okay, at least laugh with me a little bit on that. We get the idea. He's tall, he's good-looking, he's impressive. From Samuel's point of view, Ilya would make the perfect kind of king. He checked all the boxes with his stature and with his poise. Just the kind of man that people would want. But wait a minute. Last time in this book, We saw a man who was tall, good looking, checked all the boxes from what a king would want, people would want. Who was that? Saul. How well did that turn out? Thank you, Tom. Not too well at all. Maybe Samuel should not be too quick to be drawn in by outside appearances. Maybe he needs to be careful about first impressions. The next verse tells us that. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearances or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God has a point of view and we have a point of view. And God's point of view is different. Literally the text says, God is not limited in his assessment of people. We can only evaluate people based on outward appearances and the things we see. God is not limited in that particular point of evaluation. He can see everything about a person and evaluate them with Unlimited information. Jeremiah writes about this. But O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind. So God is different. We have in our information about people limited to our external observation. God has unlimited information about people because He's not limited to external observation. God's point of view is not simply that means. Another point of view in our postmodern world. God's point of view is, by definition, the only point of view that is right. It's the only point of view that is complete because only God knows all the information. This is why, when we are talking to people around us in our Postmodern world, and people will say, Well, the Bible has its point of view on Jesus, and I have my point of view on Jesus. We simply cannot agree with them and say, Well, the Bible's point of view is another point of view. No, it's not. The Bible's point of view on the identity of Jesus Christ is the only point of view that is right because it's God's point of view. And it's based on unlimited observation and unlimited information. And that your point of view and my point of view as we look at Jesus will always be limited to external observations. The things that we can see on the outside where God knows the truth about everything on the inside. Now I want to take this a little bit deeper. Verse 7 says more than just God knows people's hearts. It literally says, man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to his heart. When God sees, he is not just taking in impressions. God's point of view is determined according to the intentions of his heart, is what this says. In popular culture, a man after God's own heart is taken to mean a godly man. That is not literally what it means in this text. It literally means a man after God's own choosing or a man that God has set his heart upon. Now, I put this in your outline as a bullet point because I want to make sure it was clear. This literally means a man after God's own heart is talking about the place the man has in God's heart, not the place God has in the man's heart. This is not technically, a statement of God finding a godly man in Jesse's house. This is God graciously choosing a particular man in Jesse's house and then bringing out of him the character qualities God wants in him. This is all about God's grace. Later in 2 Samuel, David would say this about God's grace in his life. Because of your promise and according to your heart, you, that is God, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. God is the one who brought about all of his grace and kindness in David's life. That's how it all begins. It's all God's grace. Now the text continues. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. The words have changed, but the idea remains the same. None of these are the people that God sees in his heart. The idea of God graciously, undeservedly choosing people, that's talked about in the Bible. It's called the doctrine of election. And you say, well, wait a minute. What does the Bible say about election? You know, God graciously chose the nation of Israel. There was nothing they deserved to be chosen, but God graciously decided to put his grace upon them. God graciously chose King David to make him an object of His favor. He didn't deserve it. God graciously chose him. God graciously chose the city of Jerusalem to be the place where He would set up His. He would dwell. God graciously chose Jesus Christ. I put down here in Luke nine thirty-five. Jesus Christ is called God's chosen one, and God graciously chose you. And he chose me. That we would be able to trust him as Lord and Savior and know him. And that's why 1 Thessalonians says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. Before you get too upset over the idea of the doctrine of election, and God choosing us by his grace, not by our merit, I want you to realize the benefit of this. The only way that we know that we consistently follow Jesus is not the fact of how good we can hold on to our God, but how good our God holds on to us. Isn't that true? Because if it weren't for the fact that the work God began in our life he will be faithful to complete in our life, we would mess it up along the way, wouldn't we? Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't intentionally be faithful, we shouldn't intentionally persevere, of course. But even our ability to be faithful and our ability to persevere is a gracious gift from God. That's what this is all about. So let's continue here. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? It's like, I'm supposed to anoint one of them, but apparently none of them that you've shown me so far are the one that God wants. And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Rudy, it means red, so you could say maybe he's a redhead. It also could refer to the color of his skin, which would mean he had lighter colored skin. In a culture where most people had a very dark colored skin, said he had beautiful eyes, which means he was nice looking and he was handsome. Now, when we read this, the first thought is he must be a real hunk. (laughs) He's not. The good-looking strong guy was Eliab. David is too young to even come. David is a cute junior high boy. That's what this means. He's not the tall strong, you know, upfront manly type. That's Eliab who was rejected. He remember Jesse his father wouldn't even bring him to this cuz he's too young too insignificant, too small. There was nothing that would be draw people to him as a possible next king. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brother. This is all God's grace because there's nothing that makes p- people drawn to him. Remember, Jesse didn't even bring him and it obviously doesn't occur to anyone the significance of what happened we don't read that the bethlehem paper had an interview with him after this we don't read that all of a sudden david ended up sitting in a special seat at the, at the at the family table nothing significant seems to happen except this one thing and the spirit of the lord rushed upon david from that day forward and samuel rose up and went to Ramah. God's spirit begins to work in his life. God begins to shape him to be the kind of God, man that God wants out of him. Now, the main thing here is we shouldn't evaluate people based on their outward appearances. God sees the heart. And even when God did evaluate David, we saw he chose him pretty much all consistently by grace. There was nothing that would draw people to him. He's just a little junior high boy. But what I want to do for a few more minutes with our time together is just share with you some of the things I wrote down in my margins as I was studying this week. Just observations out of this text that I thought some of it would be helpful for us. Here's the first one. When God's Spirit came on David, it introduced him to trouble. It didn't take him away from trouble. You think about that. God's Spirit comes on David. We read about that. And then we'll be in the in August, we'll read about David and Goliath. And then what happens by chapter 18 is it seems like David ends up constantly being introduced to trouble. He's going to find himself hunted down by Saul, find himself constantly running from trouble. All kinds of difficulties in his life as soon as the holy spirit came into his life and that you know, reminds me of another son of david named jesus remember in mark chapter 1 when he was baptized and the holy spirit came on him in bodily form of a, as a dove and then immediately where did he have to go the wilderness to face temptations trials the devil trouble holy spirit came on his life and immediately faced troubles and difficulties in his life. I thought, it's not true for you and for me. You came to Christ and you thought maybe all the problems would go away, and then you realized you came to Christ and trials and troubles and difficulties had only begun. Isn't that the way life works? Those trials and difficulties that are in our life when we come to Jesus, uh, that's not necessarily a sign of our sins. That's a sign of our sonship. Because God uses the trials and difficulties in David's life to mature him, to improve him, and to make him a more useful king than if he didn't have them at all. Same thing goes on in your life and my life. Out of his love for us, He sometimes will bring trials and troubles and difficulties into our life. So we learn to pray to Him more. We learn to trust Him better. We learn to get on our knees in ways we never had before. That's not because God hates us, folks. That's because God loves us, and it's proof that we're His sons and daughters. Second thing I wrote down here. I noticed God began preparing David to be king Long before he made him king. Isn't it true? Here's this little junior high boy, he's anointed, and God begins working in his life, shaping his character from when he's very young. Think about Saul. Saul was different. Saul was anointed king in the middle of his life, where his character and his habit and his ways were already formed. But God started working in David's life when he was very young. And the difficulties he had in the younger years helped mold him and make him a humble king, at least in many ways. Not a perfect king, but much more of a humble king in his later years. And I thought to myself, man, what a reminder of the importance of our kids. What a reminder of the importance of the home that they grow up in and how God begins molding some of his best servants in their youngest years. What a reminder about the importance of Awana, the importance of Pastor Chris and youth ministry and youth group. What a reminder about the importance of like Hidden Acres, summer camp. God begins working in younger kids' life, shaping them and molding them then, to be much more useful for them him in later years. Another thought, I wrote down, you know, God often uses the least to accomplish his purposes. David was the smallest. He was the youngest. He was the one that his father didn't even bring to the sacrifice because there's absolutely no possible way that Samuel would want to see that little kid But that is the one that God chose. What a reminder, because that's the same way God works today. He loves to take the least. He loves to take the most unqualified, select them as his own, bring them into his church. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble worth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Isn't it good that God likes to choose ordinary people, (laughs) that God likes to choose the least? and That's what he does with us. Um, A couple other things I'll move through quickly just because of the time. The qualities God desires out of our life are the qualities he brings about through the Holy Spirit in our life. The Holy Spirit is the one who changed David. Number five, when we're looking at people, be careful not to judge by appearances. Number six, we've already covered a man after God's own heart is actually talking about the place that man has in God's heart, not the place God has in the man's heart. It's all about grace. And the last question is this, how are you judging Jesus? David was in Bethlehem, and 200 years after that, there was, um, Micah the prophet wrote about someone who would be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth from me one is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Micah says that one day, There will be a son of David born in Bethlehem who will have existed from eternity past, will be born in space and time. And then we read this in Luke chapter 2 In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you. Good news of joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now from everyone else's point of view, that was just another baby. But God shared with the shepherds his point of view. That baby was God in the flesh, the very Savior of the world. You have your point of view, and God has his point of view, and only God's point of view is right. When it comes to who you see Jesus as, are you holding your own point of view or God's point of view? Is he the Savior of the world? In the Savior that you have trusted. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, in our postmodern world where everyone has a right to their opinion and we're told that all opinions are equally right, we just want to humbly confess that when we have an opinion, it needs to submit to your opinion on what is true and what is right. Thank you for telling us the truth in your word, truth that we would not be able to know by just merely looking at external observation and external appearances. Thank you for telling us the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of what happened when he died on that cross and the truth of what happened when he rose from that grave and the truth of how we can be benefits of the creator of the universe who died for us by simply placing our faith and trust in him and believing and knowing the truth that only comes from you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.